there is no time like the 2020s to start a company, to start a startup. You know, with the rise of the internet, you can learn anything at a very low cost, if not for free. You can build anything without needing to know how to code with tools like Bubble and Adalo. And you can get the word out about your products for free by using you know sites like Twitter, Product Hunt, and Reddit. There's no time like the 2020s to build a company. Yet one element of kind of entrepreneurship and company building that hasn't caught up with the times is venture capital. Unless you live you know, in San Francisco or New York, chances are you may know what venture capital is, but you may not really know how it works. You may not know who the good VCs are, and you may not know how they think. So with this podcast of Forward Thinking Investors, I wanna dive into this world. I wanna help anyone in the world understand what is venture capital, who are the great venture capitalists, and how do they think about their day-to-day with the goal to help more people understand how it works so they can go out and raise capital for themselves. And they can build billion dollar companies just like you know Larry did at Google or Travis did at Uber or Katrina did at Stitch Fix. That can be you, but it just takes some education. And I'm using this podcast as a medium to teach everyone more about venture capital. So if you want to learn about it, you want to dive in, you want to meet some awesome investors, stick around, listen to some episodes, and I, and I hope you enjoy. Today, I'm very excited to have on not a founder, but an investor, being Charles Hudson, who's the managing partner of Precursor Ventures. Welcome to the show. How's it going? All things considered, things are great. Working from the home office. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like I've been in the same spot for about like four months and like haven't left. I kind of like, I feel like productivity has boosted significantly, which is a good, you know, again, with everything going on as like an upside um, it's also what's great is like, you know, you mentioned earlier that you're able to do more calls because you're because you're home, right? And it's like, I feel like we're all just more social, even though we're not social at all. And I feel like every week I'm picking up a new piece of podcasting equipment, whether it's a microphone or a light or something else. So by the time this is all over, I'm going to have a full blown studio at home. What is your currently, what is the favorite piece of equipment that you that you've gotten? Or what is the number one that is on your wish list right now in the podcasting department? I, I got to say, I was skeptical of the green screen until I bought one. It's amazing. <laughs> that in the ring light, the influencer ring light is also super key. But uh, I'm, I'm trying to make the most of it and trying to make my setup as, as productive as possible. So I know that so the green screen, um, obviously, this whole conversation is not going to be focused on uh, setups, but I actually am curious <laughs> about this. And then we'll dive into who you are, what you do, and go into the world of venture. But I just have one question on the green screen because I've debated getting one. You know, I do podcasts every day. What other than cool backgrounds, which is a great reason, is there any other utility for a green screen or is it mainly for rad backgrounds and like editing and whatnot? Um, I've done some TV recently and I've done some other recording, presentation recording, and I do find it helps. This might sound, maybe some of your listeners can identify I find looking at the background of my second bedroom where I work gets to be a little distracting sometimes. And I find putting up an image that's not my real life, it helps keep me focused. And I pick one that's like an office environment. So it kind of transports me to the feeling of being in an office, but it's, it's far from necessary. 
Yeah, that makes total sense. And uh, and as you're on these calls, obviously, you know, because what you do, right, you spent you, usually we're all in an office. So to kind of simulate that, that makes sense. Cool. So let's change the topic from podcasting gear in green screens to um, kind of what, what you spend most of your time doing, if not all of your time doing when you're working. So if you could just give um, an idea for the, uh, the audience, a, a little bit of a background, just like brief background on you. Um, and then we can kind of dive into what your life is as an investor. The one thing I want to mention before we start for people listening, uh, you know, every couple of weeks, we bring on an investor onto the podcast to kind of help you understand what's going on on the other side of the table. Because um, we got all these founders come on, but it's important to know, you know, if you're trying to raise money, um, or figure out if you want to raise money or not, it's really important to understand the perspective of the funders, right of the investors. So today we have Charles on um, to kind of give us that perspective. So with that context, Charles, a brief uh, kind of background on you, then we can dive into Precursor and all worlds of venture. Yeah, so I started Precursor about five years ago in 2015 with the idea that seed financing was changing in a pretty material way. When I first became a seed investor, and this might sound <clears throat> crazy given where we are today, a big seed round back in 2010 was like a million dollars. And a really big seed round was a million and a half. And now we live in a world where seed rounds are four and five million dollars. And I felt like as the seed rounds got bigger, what was lost along the way was the ability to work with people that were pre-traction, pre-evidence, just really early, where maybe 500K or a million would really make a difference in helping that company go from zero to one. And I just felt like a lot of the big seed funds weren't set up to write that check. It didn't make sense for them given their fund size. And I wanted to do the work that spoke to me and my interests, which is really trying to work with 20 to 25 teams a year at that kind of... 250, 300K from us as part of a 500K to a million dollar round, help the founders get product market fit, give them a community of peers to help support them, and also kind of give them the freedom to run the company and make the decisions that they think are in their best interest, but you know, hopefully be a trusted partner to them when big strategic decisions come up. And I felt like if we could do that repeatedly, we'd end up with a really good pool of companies at the end. Yeah, I appreciate you explaining it like that. And I actually, I think that the place I want to start is not as common. Um, I think a lot of people want to learn about what an investor looks for, what markets, what do you want in a founder. Um, but if you're open to it, the way you you intro to Precursor, you were ta- you you said specific numbers, right? You didn't say, oh, like we'll invest in a hundred to two hundred in startups this year, and we'll we'll really checks from like ten thousand dollars to five hundred thousand, right? You, it's kind of focused, and this correct me if I'm wrong and I could be kind of wrong here but it sounds like this is kind of your portfolio construction like the way that you decide um like how much to fund and who to fund etc can you kind of decide how you picked the number 25 to 30 to fund and why you picked the amount just so founders can understand that these these numbers aren't random they're actually there's some a lot of science behind them I'll try to be brief if i go off on a tangent please reel me in matt i'm counting on you here so there's a couple of things i wanted to solve for when we were creating the fund so one tension is um how many founders did i think i could work with on an annual basis and i felt like 20 to 25 was the right number that's teams for two reasons one at my old fund uncork we had done 60 companies per fund in sort of three-ish years so i knew it was possible But there's this tension where I felt like if we made too many investments, I would never have any time for anybody. 
right? It's only one partner at Precursor. We're a team of three. And so if I made 40 investments per year, I'd kind of have to tell people, I really don't have time for you unless the house is on fire or, or something really important and impactful is happening with the business. Regular check-ins and updates, like there's no capacity for that. I knew I didn't really want to take a lot of board seats because I don't think most of these two and three person pre-product companies, they don't need board seats. You can accomplish most of the things you need with regular check-ins. So that kind of meant 25 to 30 made sense. And then I said, you know, a million dollars for most companies is kind of enough to figure out if you should keep going. And I said, all right, well, if it's a million dollars, we want to be big enough that if we write a check, you're kind of default in business with your round but not so large that we're going to squeeze other people out. And last but not least, I wanted to check where I said, for a person I don't know super well, who doesn't have traction, this is an amount of money I'd be comfortable giving them without overanalyzing it and second guessing myself. And I felt like if we made that check more like 500, the founders we didn't know as well, or the businesses that were riskier, we would screen them out and we would end up gravitating towards things that felt safer. And I was like, no, no. 250 is a good dollar amount. It's meaningful to founders at this stage. And it means I can take, if you think about like the risk we're taking is partially on the person and partially on the market. And I wanted to have a check size that says we could take risk on both sometimes and, and not be stressed about it. So let's dive a little deeper into the, the latter of what you said, which is you're taking risk on a person or a team and you're taking risk on a market before going into each individual one, um, kind of this is a high level concept that a lot of, I know I didn't think about when I was first starting, you're, you're kind of in the business of risk, right? Like invest, investing in risk, mitigating risk, but investing when it's risky enough to get the D, et cetera. Can you kind of talk about how you see, how you evaluate risk as a venture capitalist? And then we can start by going into market risk and going into founder risk and how you think about that when you get a new deal on your table. Oh, yeah, it's a, I feel like I've been doing this for about half of my career now. And every year I learn something profoundly new about risk. On the market risk, I think there's just a couple of different buckets that I put the risk into. One is sort of what's the founder's thesis and kind of hypothesis on the product they're going to build. Are they trying to create a new, a brand new market from scratch? Hard, but really lucrative if you can do it. Are they trying to find an underpenetrated or underserved component of a market and serve those folks better? Those I can kind of get my hand around. Are they trying to expand an existing market by sort of reducing friction in some element? So a lot of the way I think about risk is sort of what's the founder strategy and hypothesis about the product that they're building and like how risky is that in the context of the market they're going after? So for example, if you, if you're in, the search market and you say, I'm going to take Google on head to head and I'm going to have a better search algorithm that to free. So it's kind of a difficult value proposition. doesn't mean you won't be successful, but to me, like taking on an established company in their home turf market, that's a market risk that I think of like from a strategy standpoint, it's very risky. Um, we tend to focus a lot of time at Precursor on business model innovations as a way to mitigate risk. So if everybody in your market, is building an ad supported product and you're building a subscription product. That's something that we think is one way to mitigate market risk. If, if everybody else in your category has an expensive and complicated product and you have a cheap or free and simple product, we think that's another way. If you have a different conception of how to segment the market. So I think a lot about not just like, is the market risky, but is the company strategy to attack the market? Like where does that fall on my risk preference? That's how I think about market risk. 
So I want to camp around there a little bit because you're obviously in the business of outliers and finding funding companies that get really big and cover the losses. That's the whole game of venture capital. Um, but how, if someone, if a team told you, you know, Charles, we're going to take on Google and this is how, and like, it kind of, it kind of, it, it almost made sense. Like it, it was crazy, but it almost made sense. How do you kind of, kind of think about the forces of a, yeah, but like you're taking on Google versus like, Oh, well, could this work? Like, it, it, like, is this worth even diving into? Cause they seem crazy enough to do it. How, like, I'm sure you have founders that are, have their, their, in their eyes, they're like, we'll do it. And you have to figure out if they will or not. <laughs> it's a really hard question. And I've been wrong on this before. I've, I've said no to companies that I thought had really functional, successful competitors. And I was just wrong. They were, for me, it comes down to like, what's the quality of the insight and like no companies universally strong on every dimension. For example, we have a couple of companies in our portfolio that are competing with Facebook for the core social media attention application that is the big blue Facebook app. We back those companies because I think they have insights about um, the intersection of like what Facebook does well in their business model that will allow these companies to siphon off a chunk of audience that's not well served by that product. And I believe that like their early insights about these edge customers today will be general insights about many, many people in three to five years. So that's a lot of what I'm looking for is if you're going to compete with a really well entrenched company, you have to have a really good assessment of like what they do well and how they win. And then the strategy you have has to take into account that and still be a good idea. Like, I mean, for me, probably the best example in our portfolios, we were early investors in a company called The Athletic that makes subscription sports coverage. And they had a lot of good insights on Bleacher Report, SB Nation, SI. They had all these great insights about like what the larger sports media publications on the internet did and didn't do well. And a lot of it came down to the fact that like the ad supported business model pushes you in a really specific way in terms of like what matters to you and why. And they had like a really great hypothesis about how they could sort of launch a product that had a different value prop for the customer and that in doing so they would build a different kind of business. Um, I've had a handful of investments like that. We have one in the trucking space in our portfolio that has a very different view about how you build a trucking marketplace than sort of some of the established companies today. And like, those are big, scary bets, but I'm like, if the insight's right, it'll play out and they'll be correct. It just means you have to be really comfortable with something that feels crazy for two, maybe three years until the dominoes start to fall and the cards get turned over. And you, I feel like having the market insight and, you know, the market strategies, obviously you, you mentioned it almost like one half, like, great. Like is your approach is, is half of it. Then it's like executing and actually being the team to do it, which is um, founder risk or team risk. And this is talked about a lot, but I feel like it, it, it each, each individual investor's opinion on founder risk and team risk adds more knowledge to the founder base and I have a lot of founders listening. So, so let's talk about team risk. Like if, if you get intro to a company or, you know, and they're, they, how do you look at the team? How do you evaluate them? Do they have to be X Google? What if they're, you know, like how does all that work? This is really timely. This summer we've been doing this deep dive on team composition at Precursor and like what do the teams look like? One really, maybe not surprising to your audience, but it's been surprising to my investors, 
it turns out that having startup experience at all is a huge determinant for success in our portfolio. It doesn't matter if you were a founder before, it doesn't matter if the company you worked at was successful, simply the experience of having been at a startup for us is a strong, like almost all of our strongest companies in our portfolio are led by people who worked at startups before in some capacity. And I think my conclusion is there's something inherent, I'm sure you've experienced this in your career, Matt, there's something inherent about understanding what the velocity of a startup should feel like that you can only get by doing a startup. And if you've been at a big company, no matter how successful that big company was or you were, I find it can be hard for people to figure out, well, how fast am I supposed to be running and how much am I supposed to be getting done per unit of time if you haven't seen that before? And I find that even unsuccessful startups get some elements of the startup journey right. So that's one thing we've started to overweight our analysis towards, does this person have startup experience and dial it away from like, well, at what specific company did they get said experience? Um, so that's something that like was a surprising one. The other thing I will say that we'll probably have data on this available in the next month or so. A lot of companies that we back drop a co-founder before the series A. So I think one thing I've started to spend a lot of time thinking about is, you know, you might have a team of three in front of you. And now we try to forecast based on the roles that these people have in their company do we think all three of these people will be here at Series B? And I'd say the counterintuitive thing that we've learned is oftentimes the founders who get dropped, and I don't mean it in a bad way, I mean the ones who are no longer with the company, it tends to either be a technical co-founder who can't scale to be CTO or doesn't have the recruiting and management shops to be VP of engineering, and eventually you end up with a really strong individual contributor, and that's a very hard place for a founder to reside longer term or you have multiple business-oriented co-founders. And I think at the beginning days, the CEO co-founder split, it's kind of amorphous, but as the company matures, like there becomes a pretty stark line between well, what does the CEO do and what does your non-technical business partner do? That tends to be a, another fork in the road. And some of our best companies have started off as single founder situations. So what I try to figure out is usually there's a central player in the team or if there's two people like what's their dynamic what do they each bring to the table and do I feel like they have the basics covered and we have lots of companies that don't have a strong technical co-founder at the time that we invest in them but there's always someone I feel like who's the keeper of the vision and that's the person I usually drill in the most on trying to understand what's his or her motivation how many steps ahead in that journey have they thought do I think this is someone other people will follow do I think they can recruit um, but I'm an optimist, so my general view is if you've never been a startup founder before, no one actually knows if you're gonna be good at the job. In many cases, the founder himself or herself doesn't even know because being a founder unlocks certain skills and disciplines and routines that you don't have to do as an individual contributor. So I'm an optimist, so I believe most people given the chance are gonna to rise to the occasion, and so we tend to go into it with that mindset. That's honestly, it's all fascinating. And I want to break for a second, uh, not break, but like share a quick story for listeners. Cause I, what you, what you said really resonate with me in that, like, you don't know how you're going to be as a founder until you, until you try it, <laughs> until you like give it a shot. And like, I, when I started Publoft, which is now Gigloft, but when I started Publoft, like I had no experience doing any of this stuff, but that kind of like, because I put, dropped myself in the deep end, I forced myself 
to make it work. And we got it from zero to 24 K in MRR. And then at the same time, it all came crashing down. Like this is like the, the, the roller coaster of startups. And, but I think the whole, the whole point is that I fully agree with what Charles is saying that you literally have no idea unless you, unless you give your, give it a good shot. Cause there was no way I'd know I could was capable of some of the things I now know I'm capable of. I wouldn't have, you know, lived on two credit cards for a year and, and, and try I'm not saying live on two credit cards, but like just giving it a shot just so you know what you're capable of is worth so much. So I really agree with that point. And I think the flip side is we've also invested in some highly credentialed people who I think are incredibly talented, but the startup world was not for them. So this job would be a lot easier if we could predict with perfect foresight who's going to be a good founder. Uh, we haven't. So we, we try to run a bunch of different experiments at Precursor in terms of the backgrounds and experiences of the people we fund. Well, this is actually something that is top of mind for me because I, I get a lot of inbound from a lot of people all over the world that, that of all stages of startup development that like need help breaking in. And there's some people that I think are crisp and I'm like, wow, like let's, you're, you're, you're good. Let's, let's get you in. Then there's some people where it's like, Hey, you're, you have a lot of potential, but you're kind of raw. Let's let, let me help in this way. And I, and it's all so all sort of parts of the spectrum. How do you as an investor deal with inbound of all sorts of people um, of qualified potential people you back versus people that, you know, should not be raising money right now. How do you manage that? And, uh, um, do you have like a way, like I've heard from investors that it, it's, it's kind of like a fire hose sometimes. So do you have like a, like, what do you, what was a system that you could wish existed that helped manage all this inbound, which like I experience, you experience, everyone experiences. Um, I actually like cold inbound. I know it sounds like a weird thing to say. I just think it's unfair to expect that every person with a good idea is going to find a way to connect with someone that, that I know, like it just, I don't think that's a reasonable assumption. What I will say is my bar on cold inbound is higher than my bar on like referred. So if somebody sent, so if you sent me a founder and said, this person's great, I, I've gotten to know them. The idea is a little fuzzy, but I think you'll like meeting them. I'm going to take the meeting. I want to meet the person. If that same person came in through the front door and I didn't have any context on them, I might just say, hey, I don't really get what you're building. But well-written cold inbound, and like for me, well-written means a couple things. Like it's stage appropriate for me at Precursor. So if someone's like, hey, we're raising $100 million, I'm like, congratulations, like we're, we're not going to participate. Two, it comes from one of the founders, not from a banker, not from some kind of placement agent, not from some member of your team, but like from the founder. And three, and you'd be surprised how many things I get cold that don't clear this bar. What does the company do in basic and simple terms? I don't like traction scrape. I just need to like, what does the company do? Cause we have 200 plus companies in our portfolio and there's some areas where I'm just conflicted out and I don't, I can't take the meeting if, if I think there's a conflict. Um, we do, we do kind of a once a week team meeting to go over everything in the pipeline. And then I do once a week myself for an hour and a half in the morning, everything that's in our CRM pipeline that's past first meeting. And, um, to your point about firehose, there's some weeks where I feel really on top of like getting back to people and moving things along. There's other weeks, particularly if like we're fundraising at a fund or something's happened in the portfolio, I get behind and I wish I did have some kind of like heat chart that would just tell me like, Hey, you are really behind in getting back to this particular person. Like this is, this is like not good. Like this is well outside of your personal SLA. 
But I've just found for me blocking out specific times of the week to sit down and just focus on things that are in the pipeline. But you asked a really good question, which is how do you tell people who I think shouldn't raise money that I feel that way? I think there's, there's two different, there's three different classes. There's one class where I'm like, this is just not a venture scale opportunity and you should think about other forms of capital. And it's not like to degrade the idea. It's just like, it's probably not going to be one that's going to appeal to venture capitalists. I feel very comfortable telling people that when I find those businesses, that could be like a restaurant or a service business or something that like just grows organically, but never gets big. There's a second bucket where I'm just like, Hey, this is a good venture idea but you're asking for too much money too soon. And I have this conversation with people a lot. They'll say, I want to raise a $3 million seed round. I'm like, well, your pre-product, your pre-launch, the hypothesis you have around your customer is not really well formed or really well developed. This feels very speculative to me. And I think it's going to be hard for you to raise this round speculatively, given that people don't know you. And that's like kind of the harsh truth about venture. So I'll say you have to either get to know people better or make the value proposition much clearer because like this version of it does not jump out at me as one of the small bucket cases where I'm going to fund someone I don't know pre-launch, pre-traction and to the tune of $3 million. So sometimes I'll tell people you could maybe get 500 or 750 comfortably for what you know about the business. And the third one is the hardest one, which is just like, there's nothing wrong with the business. It's just not interesting to me. And for those, I try to tell people, honestly, like, this is just like, I'm capacity constrained. We're going to do 25 things a year. And like, there's nothing wrong with this business. I just honestly don't see a path to becoming one of the 25. How do you determine what's interesting to you? Um, And I'm not curious if it's like solely market driven, solely founder driven, et cetera. But like, are there markets that you're interested in? that change over time? Are you mainly looking for interesting opportunities regardless of market? I guess, how do you, are you market driven or founder driven or somewhere in the middle? So internally, what we talk about is 75% of our investment decision has to be about the founders and the team and 25% is about the market. It used to be 60, 40. And what I realized is it meant there's markets where I don't have a strong opinion. I'm just like, this is an okay market or like it hasn't been good in the past that so maybe it'll be better now. And, um, I realized that was putting too much weight on our view on the market and not enough weight on the founders. So now I tell people there's only a few markets I have. Like I don't like advertising tech very much as a market. It, the bar for getting to a yes in companies in that category is very high, but we said there's no market we wouldn't invest in. There's some that are easier than others. And so like, for example, we've done a lot of B2B FinTech investing at Precursor. If you'd asked me when I started the fund, I would have said, I don't know anything about B2B FinTech. We just happened to have met some really awesome founders in B2B FinTech and they like it. And like, I like them and they're building cool companies. And so we've said, yes, we've also done a lot more investing in CPG than I ever intended. And again, it's like, I've just met founders who I think are passionate and smart and have good insights on these problems. And they kind of like draw me in with their enthusiasm for the problem that they're solving. Definitely. I, I feel that way on the podcast. I mean, I'm not an investor. I'd like to be at some point, but the podcast is kind of like my, like put on my investor hat for an hour yeah. a day or 30 minutes a day, et cetera. So I, I kind of feel the same way. Um, and uh, it's when you get a founder that really, you know, they have a good business ideally is in revenue or at least product. And they're just like jazzed about it. Like, that is a great person to talk to. Even if you invest, don't invest. It's just like what an energizing conversation, you know? 
So one thing, I don't know if it's supposed, I don't know if this is something that founders are supposed to know. When I was fundraising, I got this advice and like, it wasn't obvious to me. So I kind of want to dive into it with you. So I was told that I am supposed to like be very particular about terms when I fundraise and, and ask specifically about like where a, your, the VC is in, a, in their fund cycle or like where they are investing out of their fund. I think this is kind of like VC 2.0, like not super obvious if you're, if you're just, if you're just coming on a venture on the first time, can you kind of talk about this dynamic specifically like how to bring up the point on like, where are you on your fund and where should you be looking for in the fund? Like that, that whole world, can you kind of outline that for us? Yeah, I think this is something founders either didn't know to ask before or maybe thought it was impolite to ask before and we get asked this question all the time. I think it's important to know a couple of things. Like, look, if you're dealing with a really big established fund, you should assume they always have money. Like this is probably not a super relevant question for a Bessemer or a Benchmark or a Sequoia, one of those big funds. For smaller funds like mine, like we're always sort of fundraising and putting new funds together. I think the reason it matters is every time we make an investment in Precursor, in addition to the check that we write, we have sort of an internal ledger where we write down and say, okay, what other, how much money do we want to save for the next round in this company? It could be a bridge, it could be extension, it could be a series A, like how much money do we want to set aside so that if they come back and ask for it, we don't get caught empty handed. Uh, as you can imagine, the bigger your portfolio, the harder it is to make these, we call this reserves planning, these reserves planning decisions. And you as a founder, I think, should always ask founders, like, hey, do you typically participate in the next round when your company is raised? Because some funds have a policy where they're kind of a one and done check, where they write you one check and they don't really do bridges or extensions. <clears throat> also, if someone's late in their fund, they might only have a couple of investments left that they can make before they're totally tapped out of capital. And um, if you catch someone who's that late in their fund, they might be less inclined to say yes to a company than someone who's just closed a brand new fund and is making their first wave of it. Like, in theory, it shouldn't matter, right? You should have the same discipline, but it's, it matters. Like at the end, you're like trying to stretch that fund and make sure the last few companies you put in are great before you open up the next fund. So I think it's worth asking because if you met someone who's like, hey, we're down to our last investment in the fund and they're not leaning in hard about enthusiastic about what you're building, that person may or may not actually become a good investor for you. So it's good to just know where that investor is in their cycle so you can kind of gauge like capacity, enthusiasm, and put yourself in their shoes. Along those same lines of uh, that question, which wasn't obvious to me until really just now, I finally feel like I fully understand why it's important. What are some other questions that you wish founders asked um, or more kind of topics you wish founders knew more about before coming to pitch you or have a conversation with you? Well, the one that I think it happens less often now, I think and I'm a little torn by this one. I don't think it's really that important for founders to understand all the minutia of the math that I have to solve for as a venture capitalist. I think the market's come a long way here. But every now and then I do get someone who's like, well, you could just throw in like 100K. And I'm like, yeah, but like for me, 100K needs to turn into like a fair amount of money to move the needle for our fund. And so like we don't really do that. So that's just understanding like most most firms have made a decision about the check size that they want to write. 
and trying to get firms to write checks that are much bigger or much smaller than wherever they've settled is really hard. Culturally, it's hard for a firm to, to change that way. So that's one thing I would say. Um, I think the other thing that's important, or I wish that like more entrepreneurs sometimes ask is like, hey, what gets you, you already asked, like kind of what gets you excited and like what gets you to a yes? And um, I think we have a pretty clear answer for that when people do ask. And last but not least, um, I do think when I first got into venture, one of my friends always told me at most firms at any point in time, there's a very small number of uh, investment opportunities that the firm is really excited about. And if you're on that list, you have a good chance of closing. And if you're not, you don't. And I think it's important to sort of ask, like, how many things can a given fund be excited about and working hard on at once. At Precursor, I think it's probably two or three companies at any point in time will occupy the majority of our firm's attention when it comes to like new things that we're trying to get our arms around. That's it, we're three people. I just tell people it's kind of like N minus, like whatever, whatever, N, N or N minus one, depending on the firm, like number of companies that the firm as a whole can be focused on. And um, I think that matters. I really do think founders should figure out like how they can get into that one or two companies that like an investor can't stop thinking about. So sometimes I've had founders ask me, the last company you got really excited about, what was that experience like for you and how quickly did things happen? Yeah, I like that. What was the last company you got excited about? It's a good question. Um, I, the last kind of segment of the podcast is focused on people kind of like kind of like me from two, two years ago and, and this thousands of people that have businesses that are in revenue or post product, they like they are they are you know probably good investments, but they just don't have any access to San Francisco. They're in Argentina or Maine, and they just like don't know how to break in. But they have is post post product, post revenue, post all of that. What did what would you tell these founders that have something like and it's going and it's working, but they just don't know how to get access to someone like you, and they actually could they they should raise venture like these are companies that that like it actually would make sense. Do you, I mean, that's probably a hard question for me to ask you, but like, do you have any, what would you tell them if they're listening on how to get on someone like your, yours radar as their investors radar? Wow. It's a big question. Um, I would say the tide, the tide in favor of cold has changed, not at every fund, but there are more and more investors, especially at the seed stage that are open to you reaching out cold. So I wouldn't like load up a list with 50 VCs and like email them all at once. But I would try to get to eight to 10 people cold and see if you can get through, number one. Uh, number two, I think all investors kind of listen to people in our network. And so to the extent that you can get access, it doesn't have to be someone in my network. Like let's say you're building a B2B SaaS company. If you through Twitter or LinkedIn or just, generally showing up in the right places can catch the ear of somebody influential who will extend themselves for you. Do it. Like I get, I get an email a week now from someone like, Oh, I met this person on Twitter or I met this, this person like commented on my newsletter and they seem thoughtful. Do you want to meet them? Like the bar, the bar for those intros is like you, it's actually relatively low. Um, the third thing I would say is if there's something else you can, that you need other than money, money is like a big thing. If there's something else you need other than money where you think an investor can be helpful, like oftentimes I will 
provide that to people if I'm in a position to do so. Sometimes people will say, hey, do you know any other entrepreneurs who've like successfully reduced their churn rate from 10% to 4%? I'm like, oh, actually, yeah, I know a few people who might be able to help you. But I do think you have to go into this um, knowing that like there are people out there who will meet with you. It's kind of random how those windows will open. And I think the more you engage in the places where investors hang out, which is for better or for worse, VC, Twitter, and a few other places, like good things can happen from you from just being in and around the conversation and showing up there. But you have to be very comfortable making a strong, cold ask. And not everybody will. I'd argue if you're an entrepreneur, like whether it's customers or prospective employees or investors, like it's kind of a necessary skill. Um, and then I'd say lastly, if there are people from your region who've broken through, try to, try to utilize them as a resource. So if you're in Argentina and you know a great Argentine entrepreneur who's managed to break through to the Valley and you have a relationship with that person, I would, I would ask them. And the last thing is I'd say like, if you have the chance and the wherewithal to create content around the thing that you're doing, it's a great way to get noticed. It really is. Those are all great tips. I appreciate you sharing. One thing I'll add on to your second one about just being good at cold emailing, something that I did, which ended up working out, was um, just add, if there's an investor you have a light relationship with, just like keep them posted on your progress. Like every month, be like, yo, we did this, we did this much revenue. Then the next month, oh, we did this much times five. We did this much by times seven, you know? Um, and that, that, that can work. It's worked for me. I know it's worked for others. Um, so just keeping people on your update list is, uh, is cool. So I guess to wrap it up, is there any other area of venture that you feel like is misunderstood by founders, specifically founders that aren't in traditional circles in San Francisco, Stanford, et cetera, that you think would be, you know, you, you wish more of these people, you know, knew um, or any kind of topics that you want to finish it off with? I guess I would say I'm very sympathetic to investors who have frustrating seed funding experiences. Just because I think for most people, rightly, they think, oh, seed investing is the first round of money I'm going to get. These are supposed to be the people that invest predominantly pre-product and pre-idea. This should be an area where I, as a new founder, should be able to get traction. Most institutional seed funds do not operate that way with people they don't know or people who are not coming through them through really trusted channels. And um, I totally am sympathetic to the fact that founders go out and say, hey, I pitched 30 seed funds on email and they all told me I'm too early. How can that be the case? They're seed funds. And I think it's important to separate the nomenclature of the fund from the investment strategy. And what I tell people is there aren't that many funds that are bigger than $100 million whose primary activity is investing in companies from scratch. There aren't that many. And I think just like helping, if entrepreneurs could say, look, that's a $100 million fund. They used to do thing X, now they do thing Y. Venture firms change these strategies and no one really tells the entrepreneur because I think a lot of funds are like, well, we used to do pre-product, pre-launch. We still want to see a bunch of that stuff on the off chance that like, once or twice a year, we find something that we think is amazing. But if you look at 90% of the investments they make, they're post-launch, post-traction companies. And I think it's sort of a disservice to the entrepreneur that like the seed market and the entrepreneurs haven't had this conversation about when they really want to see you. And what I feel like you could do a whole, a whole podcast on that specific point. I mean, I remember 
when starting Publoft, I, I believe it was like first round, like first round on their website is just like, we'll see you no matter what, send us an email. And it's, I'm not pointing, it's not, first round's a great firm, not trying to backtalk them. It's just like one example of hundreds of firms that's similar where they, they, they make you think that, you know, oh, like, you know, you can reach out and you'll get investment, but like you're is strangers versus people they know. It's just this dynamic that needs to be further educated, uh, you know, by the VCs or by the founders or by YC or whoever, but it's a great point to end it on. Um, well, I appreciate you coming on to the podcast. Is there, is there any, anything else that you want to impart wisdom on founders listening or you've already done so much, but if there's anything else, now is your last chance. <laughs> I will say this. I think everyone who's listening is embarking into a much better world of VC. I think pre-coronavirus, a lot of people were not comfortable meeting founders on Zoom. They weren't comfortable with distributed teams. They weren't comfortable investing outside of a few core geographies that they understand. And I think we're running a very big real-time experiment about investing, shattering all those myths. And I think a lot of firms are realizing that it's not so scary to invest in people that you've never met in person that you've only met over zoom. And it's okay for teams to be distributed and remote. And I really hope that for the podcast audience, that this creates new opportunities for many of you to be able to build the kind of companies that you want to build without having to relocate to San Francisco or New York or some big tech hub, but to do it the way you want to and to be able to work with the quality and tier of investors that's appropriate for your company. If someone wanted to learn more about you, um, find you on Twitter, find your website, email, et cetera. What are ways that they can connect with you on any channels that are appropriate for you? I probably spend way too much time on Twitter, but I'm C. Hudson at Twitter and uh, our website's precursorvc.com. We also have a startup submission form there that spits right into our CRM system. So it's actually technically faster to submit on our website than it is to just email me. I mean, I'm Charles at precursorvc. Dot com. I'm happy to, to hear from folks, but like submitting right on our website is actually faster than emailing the deck to me because then I have to put it in the system. So um, always happy to hear good, good pitches from folks that we don't know. Cool. And to the final point is I, I think you've heard the word Twitter now on this podcast, uh, the listeners like five times. It actually really does matter. Like get on Twitter, follow, follow Charles, follow me, shoot me a DM and I'll like to totally, you know, chat. Um, so uh, thank you, Charles. For coming on to the podcast you are shining light on a lot of areas of venture that aren't super obvious to people outside of the bay and just to really appreciate all of your insights and time on the pod so best of luck uh you know you know finding the best companies you can i know you do and just like thanks again for coming on thank you so much for having me this is a lot of fun